Let's please to Acts chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. After leaving Philippi, Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica. And that's where we begin in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into Jewish, the Jewish synagogue. So after leaving the Philippi, Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica. We find out that Jason is their host. He allows them into their home and cares for them and provides them shelter while they're there. After three weeks of preaching and teaching, some, we find out, followed Paul and Silas's teaching. Others did not. The ones who did not believe hired thugs, invaded Jason's home when they couldn't find Paul, and literally dragged him to court. All were accused of treason. Jason was allowed to pay a fine and released, and Paul and Silas sent on to Berea. We'll get into the details after we pray. Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word, and the lessons here are for us. Help us to see clearly what is given. Help us to understand it for our lives. We want to take what is here and apply it and live it. May it correct us. May it instruct us. May it inspire us to be bold and courageous for your glory. Amen. Faithful preaching will produce good fruit. Faithful preaching will also produce division. Faithful living will bring God's blessing and faithful living will bring also bring ridicule and persecution. If we're going to live for the Lord, we're going to see two sides 
of this spiritual warfare. We're going to see God's blessing, and we're going to see resistance. A faithful message always points to Christ. A faithful message always calls for repentance. And a faithful message will instruct you that faith belongs with Christ, not faith in our works. We've got to see that. We've got to understand that. We are called to be good. We are called to be faithful. But that should be a response of our love and gratitude to the Lord. It should not be a way to earn his favor. Because his favor as a free gift has already been given. So we as a church are to preach faithfully. We are to be bold and courageous and commit the outcome to the Lord. Every time we look at the Apostle Paul's life and his accounts in the book of Acts and read his letters to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians and to Timothy, every time we read his letters, we are inspired and encouraged by his instruction. Do you ever stop and look closely at Paul's work? It had to have been exciting, but we would not consider it very exciting. We saw on his first missionary journey when he went with Barnabas. They would go into Antioch and Iconium and preach and teach and get beaten. And then move on to another place and preach and teach and get beaten. And move on to another place. And here it's happening with Silas. It's almost like Paul and hey, Silas, let's, let's go into the city and find a big bear to poke. See how mad we can make him. And once they make the bear mad, Paul is saying, boy, wasn't that fun? Let's go do it again. To him, it was exciting. To us, it was something that would be something to avoid. But we, as Christians, must be bold and courageous and commit the outcome to the Lord. Some of the results we see could be exciting and it could be wonderful blessings as we share the gospel. But we must share the gospel faithfully. Verse 1 of our text, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them, from the scriptures. Now, we're not given reasons why they skipped over two cities. We can only assume that he was still being directed and driven by the Holy Spirit. Paul, don't go here, don't go here, go on to Thessalonica. And he ended up planting a church there. Preached three weeks and was run out of town. Three weeks to plant a church. Do you know how long ministers and, and presbyteries take to plant a church these days? Three to five years. And if they aren't self-sustaining after three to five years, they're usually dissolved and they go away. Paul preached for three weeks, planted a church at Thessalonica, and here was a church that the world has never forgotten. 
In Thessalonica, he visited a synagogue. It's a good way to get through the door because synagogues had traditional Jews and they had converts, Greeks who believed what they, they were called proselytes. They were kind of converted to Judaism and taught the things about the Old Testament, about the law of Moses, and they were familiar with the terms Paul would use. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, these, on three Sabbath days, that means he was there for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, this is obviously an abbreviated account of what Paul preached. I mean, he was there three Sabbath days. And... They didn't have clocks back then. Nobody was watching their watch. So Paul wasn't limited to what he would preach and teach. Scripture says he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Explaining, the word is... Dianagon, it literally means dissecting, cutting open, cutting apart, looking closely, and proving paratithemi, placing before. He was cutting open the scripture. He was dissecting the scripture. He was taking Old Testament scriptures and saying, this is how it relates to Christ, Jesus, the one who died for the sins of many. This is what it says here. This is what it means here. He was explaining and proving that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He had to go all the way to the Old Testament. Jesus did the same thing on the road to Emmaus. Two disciples, after his resurrection, they didn't know what to think. On their way to Emmaus, started walking with this stranger. And this stranger began to explain, the scripture says, from all the law and the prophets, all the way to the time of Christ. And then they realized. Peter did the same kind of thing, preaching on Pentecost. He went into the Old Testament and explained how Christ fulfilled the promises of Scripture. Paul probably also taught, probably used a lot of Scripture, but he probably also taught them from Isaiah 53. Did you know that even today, modern Jews are forbidden to read Isaiah 53? You go to a synagogue, the rabbis there will not teach it. They will not read it, although it is in their scriptures. I've recently seen some videos of missionaries who were on the streets of Israel walking up to Jews and asking them some questions, just trying to evangelize a little bit. They would ask them some questions. They would begin reading, well, have you ever heard this before? And they would begin reading Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report and to whom has 
the arm of the Lord been revealed, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when, he saw, and when we saw him, there was no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he was born, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. They would read the whole chapter, that's only five of them, there's twelve verses in all, that's only five of them. They would read those verses to them and ask them, have you ever heard this before? And some would say, Yes, I, I think so. It's a little familiar. Who is it describing? And nearly everyone in this video is talking about Jesus. Where was this written? And they would usually say, I'm not sure, and, or some, I think it's in the Gospels of the Christian Bible but it's from Isaiah, one of their principal prophets. Here is the gospel message in the Old Testament. The suffering Savior, his death, his sacrifice, and even later in the chapter it talks about his resurrection. So that Israel might be redeemed, so that the nations might be redeemed, the Apostle Paul was dissecting the Old Testament and laying the evidence before the worshipers in the synagogue. Faithful preaching will produce good fruit. People got saved then, and faithful preaching will produce good fruit for us. We will see people saved here. You cannot do faithful preaching without explaining, explaining all of Scripture. We must dissect it, and we must lay it out before people so that they might understand. Faithful preaching will produce good fruit. Faithful preaching will also produce division or resistance. People don't like hearing the truth. Verse 4 of our text. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. That means many of the leading women also believed. But the Jews, the leaders of the synagogue, the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, or, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Why doesn't the power of God, why doesn't the power of the Spirit of God just overwhelm the resistance of men? I've wondered that. It just seems so simple that he would offer that much grace, that he would be that merciful. Why not receive the gift? Why not? It just baffles me that someone would say no. 
It flabbergasts me when I see an educated man say that God hasn't done enough. One core principle must be un- we must understand. When we look back when all of this began, Adam and Eve's sin was not eating forbidden fruit. Got your attention? That was only the result or the demonstration of their sin. Adam and Eve's sin was when they decided that they would determine what was right or wrong for themselves. Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is something that is right for me to do. I know God told me that I shouldn't, but I'm going to decide who it's right for me. It's wrong not to take it. It's right for me. Genesis 3.22, the Bible says, The Lord's word, now man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That just means that they decided that they're going to decide right and wrong for them. They're not going to let me do it anymore. Taking the fruit was only a result or display of their rebellion, which had already occurred. They had already made the decision in their hearts. I will not believe or obey God anymore. That's where it all began. And the center of that attitude is nothing but pure pride. The Old Testament gives us an historical record of the people of God, the people that God watched over, the faithful. From Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to David, the prophets. There were others that were unnamed that were faithful, but many among Israel didn't necessarily stop believing that God was there. They just stopped believing his word. That's why God judged Israel. That's why God chastised Israel. The faithful remained faithful. But because of pride and rebellion and sin... In Exodus chapter 19, we have the account where Moses had led the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt. Come to Mount Sinai. Moses went up on the mountain to speak with the Lord, and he had come down. Exodus 19, verse 7, Moses came down and called the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
but we know the story, they didn't. But what they were really saying was that we don't have to trust you or believe you. Just give us a list of things to do that will make you happy and we will do them. Give me a list and I will please you, Lord. Just watch how well, how good I can be. Most people, you and I know this, you and I realize this, most people think that they're pretty good people. I'm a good person. Most people think that. Or they try and think that. But when we see man's rejection, God provides evidence or God, when we see, whenever we see man's projection, God is providing evidence of the blindness in the hearts of all people. Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made... And all these, all those things exist. The Lord is saying, you can try and do anything and everything in this world. I've made everything that you have. I made everything that you can use. What good is it for, for you to bring it to me? But on this one, I will look. On him who is of a poor and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Your good works are not good enough, but your faith and humility before the Lord is key. It's necessary. Why doesn't the power of the Spirit of God overwhelm the resistance of men? Because most men say, I will choose what is right and what is wrong for myself. After all, I am a good person. I will prove it. Just the center of that attitude is pure pride. Keeping the law of God will never be enough because no one can ever keep the law perfectly. You can make yourself look good. On the outside, it can look like you're a good person. But the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ reminded us that it's the issues of the heart. It's the issues of the heart and the mind that are essential. Because he said that you can even hate your brother, and that's equivalent to murder. You can even lust on someone, and that's equivalent to adultery. It's not what you do out there. It's the condition of your heart within. But that, even that, is something the Lord will cleanse away. Even that is something that the Lord will take away. To the contrite and humble spirit who trembles at his word. Law of God teaches us that God's standard is is perfection. But the law also convicts us as guilty because we all fail to keep the law. 
I don't care who you are or how important you might think you are. You need to own your own sin and shame. Confess it humbly before him and he will be merciful and gracious. Fall upon his grace. Why doesn't the power of the Holy Spirit or the power of God overwhelm the resistance of men? You cannot force someone to love another. God will not force you. I've heard several, several of my friends in ministry have said, and I understand it. The Lord God dragged me coming into the kingdom against my will. I don't think he really forced them. He may have chastised them into the kingdom. But you cannot force someone to love another. Some people will not be redeemed. And that's something we, the tender-hearted Christian doesn't like that. We want everyone to be saved. Allow me to read what C.S. Lewis shares. He calls this a detestable doctrine. And in his book, um, The Problem with Pain, he says, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. If it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and specifically our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. If the happiness of a creature lies in self surrender, no one can make that surrender but himself, though many can help him to make it. And still yet he may refuse. I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. But my reason retorts, without their will or with it. If I say, without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say, with their will, my reason replies, how, if they will not give in? The pride, arrogant, rebellious, sinful heart of man that wants to prove God that he, to God that he is good enough will never be saved. He must acknowledge himself as a sinner. He must acknowledge himself as worthy of condemnation. He must fall upon the grace of the Lord Jesus and receive mercy. You cannot force someone to love another. You cannot force anyone to love God. Force is never a proper way to express love. And... As we see in our text, the Jews in Thessalonica were jealous of Paul's success. He had won some of the people in his, their synagogue, and they were taking them away. I kind of understand their jealousy. 
I would be jealous if some false teacher came in here and took some of you away. Faithful preaching will produce good fruit. People will be saved when faithful preaching is proclaimed. Faithful preaching will also produce division and resistance. It's going to call the righteous whom God has chosen out of the darkness and set it aside for his glory. And those who are left in darkness are not going to be happy. Faithful living will bring God's blessing. If you follow the Lord faithfully as a Christian, you shall be blessed. But you also need to know that faithful living will bring ridicule and persecution. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but when I was a teenager in junior high, I was one of those nuts who brought his Bible with him to school every day. This was in the late 1960s. People knew I was a Bible thumper and they would make fun of me. I was never beaten, just bad jokes, often off-colored jokes. It was ridicule. It wasn't really persecution. Persecution was it gets more physical and your freedoms are restricted or you're punished civilly because of what you believe. But faithful living will bring God's blessing upon your life and it will also bring some ridicule and sometimes persecution. Verse 4 of our text again. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did many of the devout Jews, excuse me, devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. This sounds extreme, but it's not so extreme to our minds today. If we're paying attention in some of the news, not the national news, national news media does not report things like this. You've got to go to some of the independent sources that you can find on the internet. Some of you may have heard of Arthur Pulaski. He was born and raised in communist-occupied Poland. When he became an adult, he immigrated to Canada, became a citizen, became a pastor. Some of you may have seen in Easter of last year, the Canadian authorities, the police were coming around during Holy Week, entering his church, wanting to make sure everyone there were masked. And this guy boldly refused to let them in, chased them out of his church, calling them Nazis all the way down the street. Here is a bold preacher. 
because he had seen some of the tactics growing up in a communist-occupied country that persecuted Christians. He knew what was going on. I believe it was last October or September, he was happened to be in Oregon, I believe it was, at a, he was invited there for a prayer meeting in a public park. And this group he was with, all of them were attacked by members of Antifa, beaten, punched in the face, hit with batons, while the police stood by and watched and did nothing to stop it. So what we see here happening to Jason and the friends of Paul and Silas and the people who were converts in this church at Thessalonica, it's not so unbelievable to us because we're seeing it more and more. Oh, by the way, Arthur Pulowski is back in jail again because he spoke for 20 minutes at the truckers rally in Ottawa. He didn't call for, he, he was preaching, calling for peace. He was not calling for anything else. It's not about a mask mandate for him. Faithful living will bring God's blessing. Many Christians, many modern Christians think that Christianity is all about being nice and that niceness will win people and the church will grow. Christianity is not about being nice. Christianity is about being faithful to the word and preaching the truth. There can be no blessing of God's power on a church or on an individual believer unless unless there is repentance in the church and in the life of the believer. There can be no blessing of God's power unless you turn from sin and receive Christ in his righteousness. That is the bold message we must preach courageously. That is the bold message we must preach clearly and faithfully. A faithful message always points to Christ. A faithful message calls for repentance. And this message is a message of faith in Christ and not in our works. Wait, preacher, we don't need to keep the law anymore? Yes, we do. Our Lord himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But that law, that keeping the law, is not a measure of your own goodness. The Christian keeps the law as an act of loving obedience. Most of you are married. And when you married, you stood before a minister and you exchanged vows. Do you know what those vows really are? They are the laws for your marriage. And if you love one another, it's not so hard to keep those laws, to be faithful to one another. To 
the church is the bride of Christ, and we express our vows of love. If we love him, it's just so easy to be faithful, and we rejoice in doing so. A faithful message always points to Christ. It always calls for repentance, and it always focuses on faith in Christ and not in our works. I was on my way, I'm going to conclude. I was on my way home listening to the radio, and J. Vernon McGee came on. I don't know if any, a few of you know who I'm talking about. And he had an illustration. I, I thought I heard all the old illustrations that preachers used. Here's one I, I was a little shocked because it's an old illustration. And sometimes the way our culture changes, I was, I was a little shocked that he would use this. But then when he finished, it made perfect sense. He was talking about the story of a man and his son were on a voyage on a ship on the sea. And the ship began to sink. And as the waves came over the gunnels, the boy and his father got separated. The boy was up high, still hanging onto the rails, terrified, and his father was down in the water. Jump, I'll catch you. And the boy was too terrified to let go. The father pulled out his gun, and this is where I got stunned. He's not, and pointed as a jump or I will shoot. And the boy understood his father meant what he said, so he let go of the rail and jumped into his father's arms. And then Dr. McGee applied the illustration. The law of God is like that gun. It will condemn us to death eternally because we are all guilty. If we are to ever to enjoy the glove of Christ, we must jump into the grace of his arms freely and fearlessly. That's the message we must proclaim to this world. The law condemns. Good works do not save. Faith in Christ is our redemption. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you again for all that you have done. And all that you have given, help us to be faithful to you, Father, as we serve our King together. In Jesus' name, amen.